Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the AI and Business Podcast is Sean Moriarty, the new CEO of Primer. He joins Emerge CEO and Head of Research Daniel Fagella on today's show to discuss how to build trust in the true capabilities of AI-enhanced systems that will be making all the difference in life and death situations going forward for the defense sector and beyond. Throughout his appearance, Sean emphasizes the primacy of getting end users to execute procedures properly by understanding problems in human terms, not the esoteric language of subject matter experts. Without further ado, here's their conversation. So, Sean, welcome to the program. Dan, great to be here. Thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, glad to be able to unpack some big picture topics around AI and defense with the sort of conflicts in the world. We've certainly seen an uptick in interest on some of these topics and themes, and adoption of AI is really step one to getting any value out of it. We've got a lot more to unpack, but I know you've got a philosophy around adoption, this idea of sort of small is fast, fast is big. There's versions of this in many different sectors, but I imagine defense it might be more important. You mind rolling out sort of what you mean by that? I think that'll set the table for our other questions today. For sure. You know, I would say our view on this comes from understanding the extraordinary power of this new technology and these capabilities, and also recognizing when you're introducing that power and capability in a new environment and in one where people's lives are on the line, trust needs to be earned and people need to become comfortable with and capable of operating, you know, these tools, because what we're really talking about are bringing tools to bear so that people can be more effective in their jobs in life and death situations. And so getting people comfortable using the tools is paramount, right? Where does trust come from? And so finding opportunities where we can bring technology to bear we can do it quickly. We can show the benefit. And in environments where people can get comfortable without kind of taking on the incumbent risk or the downside of something they're just getting their hands around is really, really important. Yeah, and you're bringing up this idea of use, you know, in, in all, call them legacy domains, you know, getting end users to sort of put their hands on the thing and put it in practice is its own subset of challenges and requires a ton of consideration. To your point, trust can't be built unless we can use the thing, we can get some benefit from it, etc. Are there any even more unique considerations around sort of that, that end user enthusiasm and involvement that defense leaders should think about? You know, we've heard people in manufacturing talk about, hey, you know, you want to have somebody who's kind of leading the factory floor, who has got, you know, oil under their fingernails, they've got credibility with the folks out there you know, checking in on these machines and they, they sort of maybe need to help lead the charge, not just kind of the, the vendor player. What are some of those adoption ideas that you were alluding to that, that maybe you've seen work with within agencies? Yeah. So, you know, again, I, I think it, it all goes back to trust, making sure, I think, you know, when, when people hear AI, you know, it typically, you know, does one of two things, right? It conjures up 
you know, kind of the hype cycle that this is some sort of magic pixie dust that is going to make everything better. And it's this kind of broad amorphous thing or fear. And the fear is, oh, I've heard about these large language models and I understand that there are hallucinations and we can't afford to get it wrong. Right. What's missing in that conversation, though, is actually AI, like all technologies, if, if you kind of just boil it down, independent of specific tools, context, or use case, this is software that will allow people to do their jobs better if used properly and if developed by people who understand what those jobs are and can leverage the technology to help them out. And so, you know, I will keep going back to that, which is if people were to substitute for every time they see AI, if they were to substitute in software that helps me to be more effective in my job, I think you're in a much better position to understand the power of a particular tool or software package or technology. And so I think that's key. By the way, this is true with every single major technology shift, and it always has been, right? You can go back to the rise of the commercial internet and the fear that people had around, oh my gosh, transacting online and having my credit card information go across the internet, you know, I'll never do that. And, you know, what was missing in that is people all day long were giving that very same information to strangers in the physical world. Carbon copies of cards were made, but they had internalized the risk relative to the benefit. And that what is made new again each time a powerful technology comes to bear. Some of this is aided and abetted by the vendors that are selling it and promising the moon. But much of this is just wired into the species, which is we have both significant hope and deep fear for new powerful technology. And that's probably okay. Change, change in general. Yeah, I think it is. And that, to your point, let's lean away from buzzwords and sort of talk about practical outputs improving, and maybe that'll encourage end users to sort of hop in and get excited about it. Uh, with that said, you know, speaking of new tools and also speaking about new waves of tools where there's both kind of hope and fear coming together, I'm interested in your perspective on where those waves are crashing upon the defense world with AI because, you know, in the last year or so, this big LLM and generative factor has sort of entered the mix and entered the fray. There's fears around hallucinations. There's also a lot of interest around new capabilities. Where do you see that heading into defense? What should leaders understand about how LLMs and Gen AI are affecting that space? Yeah, I, I think it gets back again to utility and to trust, right? So if you think about it, you know, look, the world has always been a dangerous place. And understanding ground truth has been the objective of, you know, every military leader forever, probably always will be. And we live in a world that is awash in data, everything from open source data to data that's coming off of sensors on aircraft. And ultimately, humans need to understand the world around them and make decisions on the basis of that understanding of the world, right? And so the way that we think about it, and our role in it, is how can we leverage our strengths to deliver speed, power, and accuracy to the operator and the analyst who are inundated with massive amounts of information and not just volume, but information 
that exists somewhere on a spectrum of accuracy. And it's their job to get it right. Yeah. And I know there's all kinds of new rules of thumb around what getting it right looks like in the LLM and AI space. There's people that are aiming to kind of construct ontologies upon which Gen AI will do its job so that we know it's kind of grounded in maybe some core facts that are going to be a source of truth versus just as much data as we can throw at it. There's sort of efforts around where humans fall into the loop. So, you know, even if the technology is not perfect every time, really big actions aren't going to leave the hands of humans. There's a lot of things bandied about now in this sort of Gen AI wave around what that looks like. Is there any things that, that you've seen cropping up that are worth discussing or worth leaders knowing about? Yeah, you know, a few things. So so first of all, it's really important for us. And it's a fundamental principle, which is ingrained in our design philosophy, which is this notion of always human. And that kind of operates on several levels, right? One is that the tools exist to serve humans, to serve us well in doing our work to move civilization forward, right? And so it always has to be designed with that end user in mind and what the goals of that end user are, right? The notion that, you know, that these tools should supplant human decision-making is just entirely inconsistent with the way that we think about the world. These tools should effectively enhance human decision-making because the options that exist at any given point, right, even if they are kind of evaluated, determined, put forth by a machine, they have to be evaluated in the human context. What is, what do we as human beings, what do we as leaders want to do on the basis of the options available for us, right? The technology serves us, not the other way around. The second is this, you know, notion of the primacy of the user, which is, yeah, the technology allows you to do very, very powerful things, but what it can't and won't solve for is human judgment. And the reason for that, quite simply, is that ultimately the human is responsible for the decision is, that is made and needs to be understood in human terms. Yeah. And, and I guess it's also from an adoption standpoint, I think the framing of, hey, here's how the user is still extremely relevant. You know, here's how maybe they're doing less of the doldrums and more of sort of the high level like you had said, judgment, that's often sort of how we mold our narrative to make sure people actually want to use the stuff. But in addition to this, I imagine this fits into the idea of trust. People are going to trust the technology when it's not going to run off and do something they don't want to do themselves, but that they actually have some volitional control. When it comes to, I guess, building trust into some of these systems, some of what you just brought up feels like it's leading us there already. But are there other kind of rules of thumb for what it looks like to bake that in from the beginning. This human centricness has got to be part of that, but maybe there's more. Yeah. So, you know, we have this concept. It's not unique to us, but it's something that, you know, informs our products at their core is the concept of grounding our models to customer data, you know, facts, reference information that is known to the customer that the customer understands and has confidence in. So in essence, the idea of you know, users query returning relevant information from their source of truth. Could be a highly proprietary data set. Could be reference information that they know to be accurate. You know, so when you're pulling information in, what you're really doing is finding relevant information, high signal information from a trusted system of record. And, 
the model is answering that question on the basis of that information. And by the way, only if that's possible. If it's not, the model answers not enough information. This helps us very much operate in accord with the DOD's ethical principles for AI, especially around reliability. And so it, we, we feel very good about this approach because ultimately you need a level of human oversight for all of this stuff because again what next word prediction does ungrounded is simply kind of leverage the sum total of all the data coming before to do that prediction and you know you know the challenges that can ensue from that yeah and then we can build on this idea of sort of not knowing enough you know be, being frank about when it's it's not enough data to make a decision we've seen examples if i just make analogies sean to other industries Think about the space like maybe fraud and insurance or anti-money laundering or something where an individual instance will come through in front of an analyst and they'll get some kind of a score of how likely this thing is to be fraud. And then maybe they'll get a confidence interval. And if it's under, let's say, 80%, maybe it'll be a different color. And if it's under, you know, even 20, 40%, maybe it'll just be, it'll just say, hey, not confident at all. Sounds like what you're articulating is also sort of thinking through. And I imagine, Sean, this is a pretty strategic exercise because what you're saying is it's not self-evident. Machine learning does not do this by itself. It doesn't come out of the box and say, I just don't know enough, right? It, it doesn't doesn't do that automatically. You're talking about building consciously into the kind of user interface a way to be able to gauge how confident we are in an answer. And even you guys, I guess, as the vendor in this case, setting the threshold below which it's going to show that red sign that says, hey, we don't have enough info. What does it look like to build that into a product because that's a very deliberate and strategic element of you know how, how a product performs. Yeah. Look, I, I think it is kind of being comfortable with kind of the fundamental tr that you know we live in a world of no guarantees. We live in a world of probabilities and that it's our goal is to be as accurate as possible. But there are going to be situations where you just don't know what's going to happen. And so what you want to be able to do is make sure that that end user understands where they're sitting on a spectrum of probability to make an informed decision, right? And this happens, by the way, all the time. If you think about the world of you know human intelligence and analysts working or operators working with human sources, right? You know, sources are not all equally accurate. You know, some source might be 30% accurate, someone else may be 80% accurate. And you make decisions on the basis of understanding reliability. The other thing is, even when you get down to the individual source level, on the basis of topic, because of either expertise or motivation or what can be known, you know, one source might be highly accurate in one area, but lower accuracy in another. And, and so, you know, that type of weighting and calibration can just allow people to make much better informed decisions. And again, when you think about this from a standpoint of what are we seeking to do? If someone is you know, operating where they're kind of accurate, you know, 60% of the time, if we can bump that up to 75 and we can get them there faster, gosh, we're much better off. And so kind of understanding kind of the real world constraints that life is just unpredictable, but we can help people make higher quality decisions with a higher probability of being accurate. That makes a big difference over time. The cumulative effect of that is profoundly valuable. That yeah. can save lives. 
Yeah, and certainly. I mean, we're talking about 15% like that at, at scale. Big deal. Would be big in, in essentially any industry. Defense, obviously, even more so in terms of consequence sometimes. I bet the DOD wishes they could have an accuracy score on all of their human sources, Sean, that you know, when somebody says something, it could have a red light flashing over their head that said not enough information for this decision. But luckily with machines, we could pull that off. I'm interested in your, your take on this element of trust and how this might even vary per use case, because I'm just thinking about all the various and sundry places where AI could be essential in leveling up defense and kind of achieving mission-critical goals. There might be one case where we're trying to track movement of you know people, things, money, whatever it is, and, and, and maybe some level of ballpark is actually kind of acceptable. It's way better than guessing or Googling or whatever. Then there's other spaces where vastly higher degrees of accuracy are necessary. Maybe we're talking about you know weapons or, or whatever else. What's the thought process in being able to gauge that level of trust? In other words, how much comfort we have with uncertainty in an AI system and, and sort of build that in for different use cases? Because, Sean, I would imagine it's quite different, actually, for different uh, applications. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, ultimately you have to think about how much precision is necessary in making a decision? What are, What is the cost and consequence, you know, of that decision? And we live with this all the time in the real world, right? There are certain environments where we say, hey, we need five nines with respect to performance and availability. In other cases, you know, that's just not possible. If you think about you know, in commercial aviation, right? You know, we have achieved an incredibly high level of safety in commercial aviation. We have nowhere near the same level of performance when it comes to taking off and landing, right? Mm, at, yeah. At a timely basis. And so we, but if you look at the difference in outcome, I think people much prefer, as much as no one likes to sit <laughs> on the tarmac and take off late yeah, or yeah, misconnecting yeah. flights, yes. people could jump on a plane and feel very confident that statistically they are very safe. Yeah. You, you, know, you can't jump on a flight and know if you're actually going to get there on time with nearly that same level of precision. So that's when it gets back actually to setting. As far as under, you know, it's interesting though, we live all the time with kind of this notion of whether we've internalized it and it's somewhat subjective or it's very clearly objective, you know, level of precision or accuracy in almost everything we do, right? Because when people are doing a job all day long, they develop a pretty good sense for, you know, what they can count on and what they can't. And it's imperfect. One of the beauties of the machine is ultimately you can inform by way of back testing. Like, hey, you know, a given source at a particular moment in time. How accurate has it been historically? That's not a guarantee that that level of accuracy will continue into the future. And so, you know, as things move forward, what I would expect is increasing sophistication and accuracy because you're going to be building on a basis of understanding is around what is known when it comes to, you know, the precision of these tools against a particular setting. You know, other things, you know, some things are harder to do also than others. When you get into predicting, you know, supply chain vulnerability, if you've got good data sources and good inventory management, you can have a really high level of precision with things like that. With things that exist in the real world that are forward looking, that are dependent on things that are just by nature unpredictable, like weather, you will just never achieve the same level of precision. Yeah. If you guys ever do develop a way to accurately predict weather, Sean, I'm sure there's a business there too. But uh, certainly there's variables outside of our control. So to your point, setting matters, 
in terms of what's actually realistic for our confidence threshold. And then also consequence sort of matters in terms of what degree of accuracy we need. And we got to calibrate that based on our use case. I, I, speaking of use cases, I want to touch a little bit on some of what you guys have worked on. And, and you know, I'm sensitive that in the defense world, maybe there's you know, there's only X amount that can really be stated here. But I saw that you guys were at the sort of AUSA recently and demoed an application to sort of track individual Hamas members sort of in a, you know, a demo that you guys have presented. I want to maybe get a little bit into that and, and talk about some of those possibilities. But maybe first, just for the for the listeners tuned in, could you kind of describe what the use case is at a high level in terms of however much you're able to share here? Yeah, you know, the short answer is we really, we leverage the core technology and this fundamental principle I talked about earlier, this notion of that always human element in the design philosophy. And it speaks to that, the importance of human oversight, right? And it's it just fundamental for informed decision-making. Regarding Hamas, say, for example, you were, by way of example, you wanted to monitor the petroleum supply in Gaza, or you wanted to be aware of a you know rocket launch from Gaza, Analysts can now significantly improve that situational awareness through that AI-enabled analysis of publicly available information. As you know, we're living in a world inundated with data. Our OSINT platform, Primer Command, it's just on a whole different level in terms of power, speed, and accuracy. What do I mean by that? You know, from a standpoint of power, so in near real time, it can ingest hundreds of millions of pieces of information simultaneously and translate them from over 100 languages, pulling from social, from news sites, you know, whether that's the Washington Post, a local news journal. And that's really important, right? Because you have all sorts of potential sources of information. Ingesting them quickly, being able to parse them, being able to rationalize them is key. Then when it gets to accuracy, you know, the ability to track persons and entities of interest, discriminate, sift, and sort, whether it's different spellings of names, generating profiles of those names, photos, details, pattern of life information, matching that signal to you know these baseball cards, entities, or knowledge base, that's really, really valuable for an analyst, right? It's got to be fast. It's got to be accurate. And then you know the ability, again, to exist within the workflow. So you know if you think about it right now, you know, in the prior world, an analyst may get several hundred sources of information or reports on a daily basis, maybe the start of a shift. They would have to comb through those individually, you know, at the pace that they can read. Of course, they triage that because they have deep expertise and they know some sources are better than others. And they're trying to basically advance that knowledge and move it through their organization. And ultimately, that results, you know, in a highly informed report that can go up to a supervisor. Well, imagine taking the same tool set when I talk about power, accuracy, and speed, and all of a sudden you can parse this, package it up, summarize it, as we know one of the really powerful capabilities of these models of properly tuned is summarization. All of a sudden you have a deep bibliography of every source that could be shared with a supervisor, another analyst, another leader, and Again, you're giving back massive amounts of time so that human creativity and expertise and just thinking about a situation can be brought to bear because that raw ingest sort organize, which before was done by humans, can be done with real accuracy a machine. And so, 
you know, our ability to provide that speed advantage and make sure nothing is missed, right, is key. And as you might imagine, since, you know, the tragedy and horror of October 7th, you know, usage has surged, you know, analysts are trying to stay ahead of noise. Our product offering allows them to substantially do that. There is a sea of mis, dis, and malinformation out there. You know, if you looked at going back a couple of weeks ago, the, you know, explosion at Gaza hospital incident, you know, the first few hours, you know, governments, news outlets, social media had it wrong, right? But guess what? You know, an analyst who is being able to comb through these disparate sources actually can get a site picture that combined with their experience and the understanding of how much misinformation flows immediately after something happens can start to see inconsistencies. They can look and they can see, well, this image is this purportedly from this situation. That's actually been out in the internet for two years and it's a thousand miles away from the actual event itself. This was put forth uh, from this source. This is in conflict with what has been put forth from this source. This is getting amplified on social media. This comes from an entity that is known to be a low trust entity, but it's got big engagement and it seems to be driving this headline. So, you know, getting through the noise and the smoke and the dust in real time is key. And we provide really powerful tools for people to do that. Yeah, it feels, feels really hard to get to 100% on any of that stuff, to be frank with you. Getting any, any amount better is, is better. I mean, if, if it was uh, snap, snap your fingers easy, I, I, I sure wish you could provide it to the New York Times. Yeah, Dan, you, you, know, you said it. Like, you know, I do think you know, compared to what is always a useful starting point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the application absolutely. of technology, right? And, I'm with you. And I do think one of the things the hype cycle does is it tends to inspire hope that is unrealistic like oh my gosh if we just apply this technology we'll go from 30 percent accurate to 100 and it's like my gosh going from 30 to 60 that makes a massive difference that saves lives that makes the world we live in a safer place and then by the way we ladder up from there as we go and so as much as we are excited about the power of these technologies we're also very clear in setting expectations with ourselves and with customers that we live in a world which is profoundly volatile. It's one that responds dynamically to events. And you know, as such, the notion that predictions can turn into guarantees because the technology is powerful enough, you know, it's kind of just a, a wrong-headed way to think about things. Absolutely. Nobody in, in their right mind realistically expect 100% accuracy or, or really much other than let's use the best tool. And so if it's better than X, you know, to your point, that's often going to be what moves the needle because those tiny percentages can really matter here. So just for clarity, you know, when you mentioned sort of tracking individual folks, you know, in this particular demo recently with you guys, it's this Hamas, this could be looking at social activity, kind of where they're snapping pictures and being able to kind of geo identify that this could be who else is in the pictures based on facial rec, things like this. So this is like the the pin in the map I'm imagining, and then the baseball card being kind of the identification of of the person. Am I mentally visioning what, what yeah, this demo you know, is about? So, so, you know, we certainly, you know, can and will leverage all the information we can glean from what is out there yeah. and really try to boil that down so that we can, with a high degree of accuracy, see what it is, you know, okay, is this a 
an entity that's known to us. Have these particular groups of people been affiliated before in a similar fashion? Did we establish the accuracy of this location? And so, you know, we do an awful lot with open source information. You can also imagine, you know, that working with clients who have proprietary data, who are operating on the basis of proprietary information, classified information, you have the same power and robustness of the tool set against that as well. Yeah. And, and so I'm almost imagining a world, you know, and I'd love to get your final clarity on this. We can end on this point, but you're talking about a demo of a set of capabilities that could be really you know, valuable and interesting. I'm almost imagining a world where, you know, that social data gets, you know, sucked up our, our satellite data, whatever other information we can kind of pull from gets pulled together. We can have sort of a very controlled corpus. That's not the entire internet. It's just this space. Maybe we can have you know, some generative capability of conjuring text about who is it, where are they, at what time, what degree of accuracy do we believe about that. And then there's a future here where maybe we can just type or say a question of sort of, hey, was anybody affiliated with such and such sort of in this area when we collected this information? Or what direction does this group seem to be moving in based on what we're seeing from social pictures and where we can geotag those or whatever the case may be? I'm almost imagining a, a really fluent way to almost talk to these corpi of data that we're, we're sort of collecting. I definitely don't want to paint the wrong future picture here, Sean, and I know this is going to evolve over time, but I'd, I'd love to know if, if that is in fact kind of what we're building towards or if you see it as a bit of a different vision or user interface or whatever. Yeah, you know, so we do an awful lot of work right now with Boolean searches, which can be, you know, very, very powerful. The next generation you know, of our product has really, really powerful semantic search capabilities. You can imagine, again, making that interface easier and easier for the user, which is, you know, giving them the power of the way they would express themselves naturally and giving them the accuracy of a search on the basis of that with the ability to refine it, you know, as they go. You know, and I, I think that is certainly where we're headed. That Delta 3 product actually will be coming out early to mid next year. We're very, very excited about that capability. Again, we talk about power, speed, and accuracy. Ease of use for that analyst or operator or leader is paramount. Again, the easier the tool is to use, the more engaged they are with it, the more fluent they become with it. But that is very, very clearly you know, where we're headed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly going to be a big deal. So how to get people used to all these capabilities, the the ability to sort of manifest it and then how are they going to ask questions and do their inquiries around it? It's almost, you know, that, that stuff is more challenging than the LLM tech, which is now just proliferated and all over the place. So looking forward to seeing what you guys come up with for products and product vision and what, what comes out demo wise. But Sean, otherwise, I know that's all we had for time. I appreciate you sharing some high level perspective about where the space is headed. Thanks so much for being with us. Dan, thank you very much. It's a privilege to talk with you about what we're doing. We're doing very important work. We take it seriously, and we think we can make a very positive difference uh, just by you know executing day-to-day. So thank you. Before we wrap up today's show, this was the third in a series of sponsored episodes from Primer. 
You can tune in to the other episodes in this series before moving on in the AI and Business Podcast queue on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those episodes include April 17th, 2023, with John Bohannon, Director of Science at Primer, discussing what AI means for the conflict in Ukraine, as well as June 19th, 2023, with Mark Brunner, President of Federal at Primer, discussing the three gaps in Department of Defense capabilities that AI can fill. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.